welcome to episode 32 of Literary Disco, Seating Arrangements. Today, we'll begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will join the waspy wedding weekend <laughs> that is Maggie Shipsteed's novel, Seating Arrangements. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Good Hi. afternoon, Mr. Strong. And ha happy first day of summer. I believe today's first day of summer, Tomorrow isn't it? Tomorrow is the first day of oh. summer, everyone. Ah, uh, it's Summer's Eve. My favorite douche. Uh, you're my favorite douche, Todd. Thank you, Julia. You're welcome. I set that one up for you. I just lobbed yeah, that really one up did. there, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a slow ball across <laughs> the plate. Anyone here want to offend me? Oh, Julia. <laughs> well, I have a book I'd like to revisit. Oh, wow. You're ready to go. I am ready to go. I was just looking at this book. So I, I recently got back from my residency. So as, as you guys know, and as some of the listeners know, I inexplicably am in charge of a graduate school in creative writing. And we just had our 10-day residency. <laughs> And um, it's always a fraught period there. Everyone's emotions are very high. And there's poets, so there's a lot of crying. And uh, there's nonfiction writers, so there's a lot of crying. And I was looking for some advice to give at graduation. I wanted to say something important at graduation because I have to make a little speech. And I was really sick, so I ended up not saying very much that was important. <laughs> I think I just sort of mumbled and said, you're all going to be successes. So inspiring. Anyway... If I had been of right mind, Julia, I would have pulled out something from this wonderful book called Letters to a Fiction Writer, edited by Frederick Bush. And it's a really cool book of letters from famous writers to aspiring writers. Um, and it was collected, God, I think this book came out, I've had it for a really long time. It came out in 1999. Um, and the letters are from people like Lee K. Abbott, Charles Baxter, and Beattie, uh, Janet Burway, Raymond Carver. Nicholas Del Blanco, just John Updike, Melanie Rayton, Tobias Wolf, all sorts of people. But there's one letter in particular that's really interesting, um, and it's a letter that Ray Bradbury wrote to the writer Dan Sean when Dan Sean was in high school. And Dan Sean had met Ray Bradbury and started sending him letters. And Can you tell me who Dan Sean is? Yeah, Dan Sean wrote um, the book Among the Missing, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, also the novel You Remind Me of Me. Um, Await Your Reply, uh, Fitting Ends. He's a short story writer and a, and a novelist. Dan Sean started his correspondence with Ray Bradbury, sending him stories and whatnot. Ray Bradbury, you know, sort of gives him a critique of the story and tells him different things. In it. And, then, and then at the very end, Ray Bradbury says to him, Why are you going to college? If you aren't careful, it will cut across your writing time. Stop your writing stories. Is that what you want? Think. Do you want to be a writer for a lifetime? What will you take in college that will help you be a writer? You already have a full style. All you need now is practice and structure. Write back. Soon. Luck to you. And, mm. and that was in 1982. Um, so Dan, Dan's probably, um, he's maybe four or five years older than I am. So he couldn't have been more than, you know, 16 or 17 years old. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Ray Bradbury saying, don't go to college, just write. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, mm. it's a really cool book, and there's lots of um, interesting letters. And it sort of reminds me about before the Internet existed, if you wanted to contact a writer, like, you really had to work at it. You had to, you know, mail the publisher or track them down or whatever. Now, if you want to email me or contact me or any author or contact any of us on the show, all you got to do is tweet at us or 
you know, you can go to our websites and email us. But, it, but then how would, I mean, wouldn't back then getting a letter from a fan be much bigger? Yeah, than I think so. I really think so. <laughs> I mean, I think if I got a letter in the, in the mail, you know, only once every couple of weeks from somebody saying, hey, I really love your work, the chances of me responding would be so much higher oh, yeah. than if I'm, like, on Twitter and getting constant, like, you Absolutely. Know, I imagine it must have been... There must have been more correspondence in a weird way, even though there was less. Well, I think there's more formal correspondence. There was also recently, I don't remember where it was, but there was um, a reproduction of letters that the writer Daniel Mendelssohn, who wrote the book The Lost and is a really great literary critic, wrote to this sort of popular sort of romancy author who was a woman. Um, who basically wrote about gay men and it helped him come out, basically. I don't remember where it was, but it was this whole series of letters that he wrote to her when he was like 13 or 14 years old after finding one of her books. And they you know, had some long, years-long correspondence that, that lasted. And you hear stories about that. I don't think you hear it as much anymore as you used to. Yeah. Um, and then there's the one other thing that sticks in my mind, right after John Hughes died... There was that young woman, and I think I, I think I follow her on Twitter. Um, that young woman who revealed that she had had a years-long correspondence with John Hughes, and in that correspondence, he had told her and no one else why he had stopped making movies, which was because of what Hollywood had done to John Candy, as I recall. Hmm. Um, and so it's just this, you know, fascinating little subculture that exists around letter writing that I think doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but this book, Letters to a Fiction Writer, has all sorts of interesting nuggets, and it's it's sort of inspirational in a way as well to hear what an established writer says to a young writer. So I've always sort of liked this book for that reason. But it's also neat to see that that Ray Bradbury just wrote a letter to a young writer, and uh, who turned out to be a really fantastic National Book Award losing novelist, Dan Sean. I never did that. I never did. You no, I never, authors? I never did. You know, the only thing I ever did was when I was a kid. This will be not surprising to either of you in light of the conversations we've had. I wrote to athletes yeah. and would be like, can, can you come to my school? Can you come see me? And then, like, like you know, you get a form letter from the Raiders saying, thank you for your interest in Ken Stabler. Um, right. But no, I never did. I remember my sisters used to always write to actors and to get signed photos from Teen Beat or Tiger Beat or whatever. Um, but writing to authors makes more yeah, sense to me, it does. right? Because it's like, they're writers, that's what they do, and if you're talking about craft or whatever, or I don't know, just communicating, it makes more sense. Like, oh, I want to get a letter back from a writer. Yeah. What about you, Julia? What did you pull down? Okay, guys. So, speaking of famous writers, as you all know, and I think anyone who's on our Twitter lately knows, um, I'm going to meet Stephen King in about a month. I told this to Alex, by the way, my fiance, and we were both like, could we fly out there? <laughs> We were like considering coming out just so we could it's meet Stephen amazing. King and see you interview him. It's so. It's awesome. amazing. I would. I wouldn't be able to talk. I would not be able to talk. So I'm on a binge on one of my yearly binges. I can already tell this is going to be a habit in my life, and um, so I just read, and I had never really heard anyone talk about it, even though it's obviously one of the most famous ones. I just read Salem's Lot. Have you guys read Oh, Salem's that Lot? book scared the shit out of me. I actually listened to it on audio. Uh, I read that book when I was like 11. Danny Glick, I'm knocking on the window. Guys, Fuck that. that book, <laughs> I mean, for me, so I, I think The Shining is one of the scariest books, probably the scariest yes. book I've ever read. And I don't know how I missed Salem's Lot as one of the classics, but my epiphany moment was, I, I really loved it. The epiphany moment of why I loved it is it combines two of my favorite genres one is obviously vampires who are actually scary and <laughs> yeah. 
Number oh. two is my probably my absolute favorite <laughs> genre of like pulp read, which is a plague. So, you know, you meet everybody <laughs> in the town and then, you know, they're all going to get it. You know, that's nothing can make me happier. Nothing can make me happier than the spread of plague. <laughs> the look on your face right now. <laughs> Utter ecstasy. Awesome. That was my favorite face you've ever made. So you love the stand. The stand's all plaguey. I love the stand. Um, Every time someone sneezed, I'd be like, yes, amazing, they're going back. <laughs> it was really interesting to read Salem, or to listen to Salem's Lot after having read all this other Stephen King, because it really was the first one, I think, that kind of um, solidified what became a pattern through all his later books, this idea that, like, an evil force enters a small town mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. enters a new, and then the whole place gets divided into mm-hmm. good people and bad mm-hmm. people like that's sort of yeah. his he has like this manichaean worldview it, this because the same thing happens in the stand right mm-hmm. it's like yeah. except it's all of america it's like the bad people get visions to go to vegas and the good people get visions to go to like the south or something right, right? I, I just it, it, i it remember reading a lot of lot and being like yeah. oh this is yeah needful things follows Tommy that pattern knockers, it follows dome. that pattern yeah, all of them. yeah and like there's always people seduced by the dark side and they go with the devil and there's people that you know and right. it's interesting like reading Salem's Lot, it was one of the best versions of yeah. that because it was the it's the first, and it's like the building the team. Like when people start realizing that their their whole town's being taken over by vampires, and they're gonna like band together to fight them. It's awesome. Well, one thing I like about Stephen King is he's not. I don't know. This used to bother me, but now I just have changed my mind. I he you know he's not the best writer in the world. Like there are huge weaknesses. So well, like, you, you them, also have to remember that for a long time when he was writing the books, he, he was, was really drunk. strung it on cocaine. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> that's gonna so, hamper your ability, right? So, but one thing that's like a weakness in the book, but I just find it hilarious is so someone of course figures out that they're vampires essentially right away. And then he goes to a priest, and he's like, this is going to be really difficult to convince this priest. And the priest believes it within about 10 seconds. And then it's just really, it's too easy, but it's so delightful. And for me, Ryder, it's more of an experience of having read this increasingly softening um, view on vampires in our culture. It was great to get Mm. back to a vampire book where they're evil, they're horrible, the end. None of them mm. are Angel right. from Buffy. None no. of them, obviously, are the Twilight vampires. They're just they're parasitic <laughs> right. forces that cannot be stopped. And yeah, it, right. it's great. Now I'm I was obsessed misery. with the movie, the movie of Salem's Lot. When I was a kid, I thought it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. I'm sure it's horrible. David Soul, yeah, David Soul is the hero, and you <laughs> might remember him from Starsky and Hutch, and <laughs> his hit song. What was his? He had a single. This is that period of time where actors also had songs um, and then starred in TV movies. It was a, a halcyon time in our lives. Oh, I was obsessed. I just remember the movie Danny Glick knack, knocking on the window. Oh, yeah, terrifying. God, yeah, and, shit and now, side, side note, I'm not done with it, so I can't talk too much, but now I'm reading okay. Misery, and it's excellent. Oh, uh, Misery's really horrifying. I think Misery's one of my favorites. I think Misery is the best written one that I've ever read. I think he's a great literary writer. Mm-hmm. Um, a better literary writer than perhaps a horror writer. And I really have stopped reading horror. You know, I haven't read a horror novel in years, come to think of it. When was the last time you guys read a horror novel? Well, I mean, other than what you're doing right now, Julia. You know, I absolutely adore horror movies. And I've kind of 
gotten really into that in the past few years, and I've been thinking a lot about how I haven't read a lot of books that are truly scary. So I'm not even sure that I've read. I read The Keep by Peter Straub. I never got into horror. I read Dean Koontz around the same time that I discovered Stephen King. So this one I was like uh, 12. Dean but Koontz just didn't last. Like, I think I made it through two books, and I was like, oh, this is horrible. And then I never embraced the horror genre outside of Stephen King. I refused to read Dean Koontz because he has such a horrible wig. You can't read anyone with a wig that bad. You can't read. Is it as is it as bad as TC Boyle's uh, outfit choice? <laughs> Dean Koontz's wig. Uh, it looks like someone dropped a, a bowl of spaghetti on his head, but cut evenly around. Oh, it's a horrible wig. Horrible wig. But you don't want to cross Dean Koontz. That yeah, man's got a powerful did. army. Guess what? You just did. Yeah, it's that's not the you. first time. Over for you. Fuck it. I've crossed Dean Koontz, bitch. <laughs> well. Uh, in the vein of Dean Koontz, not at all, uh, I'm going to talk about James Joyce. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm getting married, uh, and so is Julia, actually, and which is actually why it's really appropriate that we read seating arrangements uh, for today's episode. But part of my wedding planning, we're going to have tables organized by authors, because of course I'm of course you a are. book obsessed, obviously, oh. and... Alex is book obsessed as well, and so um, I just w- we're gonna have like you know. I just want to ask gonna- Ryder, why be seated at the Todd Goldberg table? I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't want to. I don't want to. I'm gonna have to have a Todd Goldberg I didn't wanna. table. You know what? There is gonna be a Stephen King table, so you might be sitting. I don't want to but- presume that I'd have a table, but if I do, I want to be at the Michael Crichton table. Oh, Congo! <laughs> so there's gonna be a James Joyce table, and. We, we're we trying to find hardcover editions of books to have on the tables, you know, to decorate. And so we're, we're just, I'm suddenly like scouring old secondhand bookstores and like realizing that it's kind of hard to find classic books mm-hmm. in hardcover for less than, you know, 15 bucks or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, one of the books that I grabbed that I didn't own and I, so I bought it and I figured, well, even if it doesn't end up decorating the table, it'd be good to have is Finnegan's Wake by James mm-hmm. Joyce. And have you guys ever actually picked up and flipped through this book? I no. think I looked at it when I was working in the library at my school. I have I have a, a memory of attempting to read it in the height of my college throws. I read Dubliners. That's enough. Yeah. No, I love I love all of James Joyce's work, but Finnegan's Wake. I thought I had owned it, and I thought I had tried to read it when I was younger, but I don't even know if I actually did. So James Joyce wrote. Uh, Dubliners was his first collection of short stories that he published, and then he wrote Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which was a huge success, and then he followed it up. It took him about 10 years to write, I think, 10 years? Is that how long it took Ulysses? But Ulysses was published, and that, you know, revolutionized literature. And then for the next 17 years, he wrote Finnegan's oh Wake. God. And it is still the craziest book ever written. It starts off in mid-sentence. It starts off with the word, River Run... Past even Adams from swerve of shore to bend of bay brings us by commodious vicus of recirculation back to Howth Castle and environs. And what that is, is the last sentence of the book connects to that first sentence. So it's actually cool. written as a like c- circle. Oh. Yeah, cool idea, right? right? But that means it's a never-ending project to keep reading this book. <laughs> and it's true because it he made up a lot of words. He's pulling from ancient Irish. He's he's pulling from Latin. It is the craziest. I'm just going to read some of this aloud. Okay. Bygmeister Finnegan of the stuttering hand, Freeman's Moorer, lived in the broadest way imaginable in his rushlet too far back for messages before Joshua and Judges had given us numbers or Helvetica's committed Deuteronomy. One yeasty day he sternly strooks 
his stet in a tub for watch his future of his fates, but ere he swiftly stook it out again. By the might of Moses, the very waters was evaporated, and all the Guinnesses had met their exodus, so ought to show you what a Pensgen Jushi chap he was. Okay. Okay. Huh. Alex and I sat down and started reading this aloud to each other, huh. and I, I, I don't understand how people can say that they've ever read this entire <laughs> book. There is nobody no out there. No, but at the same time, I'm fascinated, and I feel the challenge glaring at me from this book that I have to read it, and I don't think I ever will. I, I honestly don't think I ever will. I'd so much rather reread Ulysses, which is awesome, and incredibly difficult to read. Ulysses hurts her head to read. But this is like on this whole other level of experimental fiction. It's like a meditation. It's so challenging. And I really, I want to know who the hell has actually read this book. <laughs> and I want to know, um, you know, because there's Anthony Burgess is like one of the people who's like on the back of the book. Joseph Campbell. You know, they have all these quotes about how good and important this book is. But for the most part, as far as I can tell, everyone kind of threw up their hands at Finnegan's Wake and said, well, it is a masterpiece. It is genius, but none of us are ever actually going to decipher it or even know what the plot is. Like, let there alone... There must be an annotation. Yeah, some, some, there must be an there, annotation. There are, There's lots of there scholarship, are. I'm sure, on it. And it seems like Anthony Burgess would be the perfect guy to be talking about it because of A Clockwork Orange, obviously. So, but, I mean, even on the basic level of plot, people disagree on what happens in this That's book. That's weird. Like, people don't know. But, but even when Alex and I were reading just the first two pages out loud to each other... I started to pick up on things. Like, if you notice in that first sentence I read, he has an Eve and Adam reference. And then the things that I was reading, uh, which was only from the second page, has a Moses reference and a Deuteronomy reference. And then if it keeps going... So, like, you, you kind of actually, by page five, have worked your way through Genesis to Mount Sinai and Deuteronomy. And it was mm -hmm. like, wow, okay, so there is a there is an architecture, obviously, because Joyce was that genius. Mm -hmm. And like, so there's part of me that feels like this is a challenge that at some point I should try and take up because I finished Ulysses in a class. I don't think I ever would have been able to finish that book. But now I consider it one of my favorite books ever because it really is worth it if you take the time to figure out what the hell is going on and what the organizing principles are. And so I, I don't know. Finnegan's Wake, it's like one of those things that's going to always be staring me down, just like Savage Detectives or what are the other books that I said I couldn't finish on this show? Uh, Moby Dick. Um, Infinite Jest. Moby Dick. No, no, no. I, Infinite Jest. Exactly. <laughs> Infinite Jest, though, I, I know I could get through. I just get annoyed. You know what? This one, <laughs> I'm like, I actually don't know if I could get through or understand. He, here's what I don't understand, about. and just on sort of a clinical level, is I don't understand how you could be motivated to work on something for 17 years. Like, mm -hmm. I, I can't conceptualize that. I mean, of course, Joyce has an intelligence far beyond, you know, you and I and the rest of us. You and I being right. the, the plural. Um, and I, I just don't... You all. You all, y'alls. Um, you know, I, I just can't conceive of waking up every morning for 17 years and saying, oh, I'm going to get back to work on that book. I mean, it just, it seems impossible to do that. Yeah. Like days on one sentence. And that's what I do love about it. I love the musicality of the language. I mean, nobody mm -hmm. does this better in terms of just sounding good. It's like, I mean, I don't know what the hell I'm reading, but I know that it sounds good. And actually, maybe I should listen Ryan, to it on audio, to it? Yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Try that. Somebody. <laughs> but I feel like hundred hours. is... Yeah, I would just be missing. It's gonna be like I don't. I don't know <laughs> I'm sorry, I lost. Yeah, I lost track. I'm uh... in the in the third paragraph. There is a word in parentheses. The there's a word in parentheses that looks like it is it's made up of about 
um, 50 some letters and it's one word. <laughs> baba Great. Baba Dalagara Takamana Reno Mon. It just goes on like that. That's in the third paragraph of the book. Okay. Why don't you just read two pages a day? Yeah, for the rest of your life. That's actually not a bad how, idea. I mean, how long is it? Five or six hundred pages? Wake up every day and read two pages? Yeah, it's six hundred pages. Yeah. You read two pages okay. a day, you'd be done in uh, a year. Do it. The Finnegan's Wake Challenge? Oh my god, you know what you should do? You should start a blog called <gasps> Finnegan's Wake The Challenge. And then every day you talk Waking about... Waking to Finnegan's Wake. And it's yes. every morning I wake up. Finnegan's yes. Wake Up. Finnegan's, Finnegan's Wake Up. <laughs> Finnegan's Wake and Bake. Even better. Finnegan's Wake and Bake. <laughs> yes. I will be high for 365 yes. days. Yes. Yes. But only for 10 minutes. But only for 10 minutes. That's it. Just one hit and two pages, and then you start your day. I think we've got a blog here. Why am here? I kind of tempted by that? I, I think we don't just have a blog here. We've got like a three-book deal here. If you Finnegan's Wake and Bake. Finnegan's Wake and Bake. You could totally get a blog out of that. Now, but then I also have to write a blog every day. Right. So you're talking about outsource that. Yeah, smoke yeah, outsource that. So that means by like 10 a.m. I will have been high. Right. I will have read some Finnegan's yes. Wake and probably have written two pages right. of blog and, and eaten a bowl of Cheetos. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Cheetos. I'll be on ice cream by noon. Finnegan's Wake and Bake. The year I gained 800 pounds. I, I think this is a fantastic idea for you, Ryder. I, I well, wait, hold on. Why don't you guys do it with me? Why don't the three of us do it together? Oh, I'm going to be you guys so high. I'm busy with literary disco. Is there is there a oh. way we could be Finnegan's Wake and Bake, but I take Adderall? Because I I would really prefer that. No, Todd, you should do Moby Drunk. Oh, you, you do that. yes. Oh, my God. Okay. Yes. So, that's yes. perfect. So he does Moby Drunk. I'll do Moby no, Drunk. That, I mean, this is dangerous. We could literally ruin our lives. Yes. Like, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. The Iliaderol. <laughs> <laughs> the Iliaderol. Yes. Finnegan's, Finnegan's Wake and Bake. And Moby Drunk. And Moby Drunk. You guys, if we did this. This is it. This is it. Forget literary disco. We've, we stumbled on a way to monetize our passions. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. So I picked a book for this time that is a little unusual. Um, well, unusual because it's sort of outside of my taste, I think. Uh, it's a book called Seating Arrangements by a writer named Maggie Shipstead. And I hadn't, frankly, heard of this book until I was at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. I went to the book prizes, and um, she won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Best First Novel. And so I tend to buy the books that win Best First Novel because I think the LA Times typically has really good taste with their awards, even if they didn't give me one when I was nominated, the fucking bastards. Um, I know. So I picked this book up, and um, it had a blurb on the back from two of my favorite authors, Richard Russo and Justin Torres of We the Animals, which we talked about. And uh, the three of us sat down to read it. It's sort of a, a perfect book to read right now because it's about a woman getting married and her family, and it just so happens that Ryder and Julia are getting married to, to different to people. Not to each other. <laughs> Not to each other. Not to each other. Uh, so anyway, it's, it, they, they have some um, ability, I'm sure, to be close to the material since they're in it right now. I was married so long ago that it seems like ancient history. But it's, it's a literary novel. Maggie Shipstead um, has been in Best American Short Stories, and her short stories have also appeared in Tin House and Glimmer Train, and she went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford 
which basically says she's got a really great literary pedigree. Um, so it's an interesting novel, and let's, uh, let's talk about it. What uh, did you guys think? I have mixed feelings about this book. I, I do think it's incredibly well-written. Actually, before we were recording, one of you guys mentioned that she's 30 years old. Finding that out makes me feel better about this book. Um, <laughs> Why is that? Because, well, because I think that there is... Okay, well, my one-sentence, awful, snarky review is this is Franz and Light. Mm. And... Yeah, I thought of freedom the whole time. Right. It had, like, nods to more sort of the, the sprawling family in crisis, the way that freedom or mm-hmm. the corrections, you know. And, but and it, and it had a lot of nods towards that kind of complexity and interesting characters, and it just didn't quite make it there for me. Finding out that she's only 30 years old, I'm only 33 myself, so this isn't saying much, but I just think... I think you can only write like Franzen when you're over the age of 35, maybe, or over the age of 40. If you're going to have a multitude of characters and then filter all those characters through each other and constantly be shifting between people's perspective, you kind of have to have really vast life experience and and to, to sell that and to make that realistic. And I just felt like this book fell short. It did. A, it, it almost should have been longer. In a way, yeah, well, we just... we should explain a little bit of the plot. So basically, yeah. the main character is um, a man named Wynn, who is the patriarch of a family of a wife and um, two daughters, uh, Daphne, who's seven months pregnant and getting married, and Livia, who uh, recently had an abortion and um, is going through a, a breakup with her ex-boyfriend Teddy, um, and they're all gathered at a house. Um, on an island much like Nantucket um, for Daphne's wedding to um, uh, Grayson is the husband's name to be. And it takes place over three days. The rehearsal dinner, the day before, the rehearsal dinner and the wedding day. Um, and it's all, the the family's all there and then the, the, the groom's family all comes in and it's told mostly from Wynn's point of view but also at alternating points from Livia's point of view, from the wife's point of view, Biddy, um, and from several other characters' limited points of view as well. But Wynn's the main character, who's a father. He's yeah. about... He's in his 60s. And Wynn is in the midst of uh, falling head over heels for one of his daughter's friends. Uh, Agatha is the name of the friend. And they've had, they had a brief moment um, before the book starts where she had held his hand and has lit in him a passion he has not known since his days at Harvard. Um, and so that's sort of where the, the leaping point off is for the book. Um, so I, there's, I agree with you, Ryder. I, I think she swings for the fences here. It's a big, sprawling mm-hmm. novel that's actually pretty short. It's only 300 pages. Um, but it's her evocation of when the main character is this older man dealing with sort of his life and his loss or um, inability to find passion again that did not ring quite true to me. She, I didn't feel she was able to inhabit this man as well as she, she could have. I thought she inhabited Livia quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was this, and I don't know if it's just the writing or what, because the writing's quite beautiful, but I, I, I never was able to get close to Wynn, to the main character. And that, I think, has something to do with just the general passivity of a lot of the characters in the book, um, which we can talk about. So... I was afraid that this book was going to be, as you guys know, I originally was very apprehensive about reading this because 
I was afraid that I would hate it because it was so stereotypical. So I've read Prep and I read Freedom, and I actually didn't love Freedom as much as the rest of the world did. And, you know, I feel like every few years a book like this... Oh, I also read that... um, Thomas Wolfe novel about the high school girl. Shoot, Charlotte Sometimes? Charlotte Simmons. I am Charlotte, Charlotte Simmons. Simmons. Charlotte Sometimes was a song by The Cure. And I, I feel like every time, like every two or three years, some book about young women comes out and people lose their minds. Like no one's ever written about young women before. And it's it's a really strange phenomenon, I think. But, um, you know, I, I really... So I ended up taking out a pencil and... I would either, (laughs) my book is now hilarious, like, underline and star amazing writing. Um, So, like, for example, when describing why a girl was friends with another girl in high school, she said um, she had been a kind of skeleton key to prep school, and Dominique Mm. had taken possession of her gladly. That is such a, it's great writing, and it's, it's a true emotional phenomenon. Um, but then <laughs> the other half of the time I would write no in the margin because the details were, were wrong. And for me, you know, I was really curious how you guys felt because, you know, so in this book, the family lives in Connecticut and the wedding is on Cape Cod, which is my current lifestyle. <laughs> um, but I have, but this is not my lifestyle. It does not represent anything real. Everything in the book is about what club you belong to and, and where you prepped and where you went to school. Um, and it, it, the, So here's the thing that I didn't quite get, and, and, and maybe it's just my reading of it, is I couldn't tell if the author was making fun of people who care about being in clubs or was dealing with it directly. I agree. So Wynne is obsessed with getting into a club on this island called the Pequod. And it's a big plot point that he wants to get into this club. Um, but that that was the thing. I mean, that's so far removed from anything I'm familiar with. It, it only exists in books I've read, quite mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. that it was hard for me to glean whether I was supposed to be laughing at or with them. And I think maybe the author doesn't know which one she's doing. I mean, I think that Maggie Shipstead does think it's funny and interesting, but I didn't believe that she had lived through it. So, like, for example, um, this is just something that is, it's a tiny detail, but a detail that matters a lot. So they mention that they live in Connecticut. She never names a town in Connecticut. She never names a city in Connecticut. There's no detail behind where in Connecticut, how far away, any any richness of detail there. It's just Connecticut as an idea, like John Cheever's suburban Connecticut, mm-hmm. that's not grounded in in reality. This book owes a real debt to John Cheever. I mean, this is John Cheever-esque. It's, it's that she almost didn't couldn't decide if she was whether it's realist or cartoony because just their character names are mm-hmm. incredibly cartoony. So cartoony. Right. Crazy. Winnie Van Meter, Sterling uh Dickie Duff. Dickie Duff. Dickie Duff. <laughs> Ophelia Fenn. I think that she believes that the people who inhabit this world are real people, but she's keeping a remove a judgmental remove that makes it impossible for her to prove that they're real people. Hmm. So she's trying too hard to be judgmental of them. And so in a way she is selling her own book short. No matter how much she describes their anxieties and their disappointments and their depressions, 
she inherently seems judgmental of these people all the time. I think there are some exceptions. I think she, I totally agree that Livia is the best drawn character in here. But, you know, there's really easy moves in this book. Like, mm-hmm. um, for example, Agatha, the, you know, the slut, there's nothing else to say about this character. Can we just, no, I, I think she's clearly the manic pixie dream girl. Now that I know that term, she's the you, manic no, pixie dream girl. No, you know what she girl. is? This, she's, um, it's American beauty. That plot is American beauty, mm. literally. Right. And, well, I, I mean, but the thing ha- is, like, having an old man fall for a young woman is also the plot of the course of human history. Sure, but right. here's the thing. So here's what this book this book claims to delve into the points of view of all the characters except the slutty girl. She never gets any treatment, and neither does the bride. It's very strange right. in that way. You know, it's mm-hmm. only these side characters who are more complex and interesting um, that get, you know, that get the time devoted to them. I agree it could have been much, much longer. I just, I wanted to either go all the way of satire or all the way into really liking these people. Well, I think I, I think that that middle ground makes the book tough because it is funny. There are some some very funny bits to it, yeah. and there's some there's a very funny set piece involving a whale, which we won't spoil That's for the, the readers. Best part. Yeah. Um, and and I think she has some very beautiful writing, but because that buy-in isn't quite there, either for mockery or sympathy. They end up just being a lot of really unlikable people in the book. Mm-hmm. But all those things are redeemable in a novel if someone is really a complex and interesting character, as well written as it was. And it's just sort of a weird book to, to critique. And I was thinking if I had to review this book in a newspaper, how I would review it. Because I enjoyed the hell out of reading it. Well, yeah, we, we should mm-hmm. actually make that very clear. Because I also tore through this book. Yeah, I really liked I, it. I mean, read it faster than some, anything I've read in the last couple of weeks. Like, I was just like, oh, and I kept returning to it. Mm-hmm. When I had other things to read, I kept being like, well, I want to find out what's going to happen to win in them. So, I mean, that is a huge accomplishment yeah. that we need to recognize. But yeah, yeah, these other problems still linger. <laughs> what should have been, what could have been farce ended up as tragedy, and the tragedy didn't feel led to. Um, I think that there's this really Im- essential part of this book that is a missed opportunity. Okay. So Dominique is this character. She's Egyptian and she's introduced and she makes comments like on page 49, she makes this like quick, like first world problem joke. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that Dominique is inserted into this novel to be like the anti-wasp. You know, mm-hmm. she's, she's this foreigner who was raised in this sort of world, but clearly has an outsider's perspective, having come from Egypt and as a teenager and then worked her way through the upper crust of society. And now she's living in France and, you know, dating this sort of hot headed French cook or something. But I felt like that character, I kept waiting for that character to come full circle and to Mm -hmm. have a a real point and Mm -hmm. it's she doesn't and it's obvious to me she has no effect on the story she has no effect on the 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 characters and they have no effect on her so it's obvious to me that she's a tool for a writer to insert criticism into an otherwise all waspy Hmm. novel Mm -hmm. it's such a clear structural device that that maggie shipsteed was sitting there going uh Oh, I need I need to let the readers know that I don't really believe in all this club chasing and the awful things that these people are doing. I don't actually believe in any of that. So I need to insert a character that is sort of my cipher to critique these people, which I get, fine, but then Dominique never feels like a real person. She never has a story and never goes anywhere. Well, as a narrative device, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, 
So here, so Dominique, the character, is friends with both Daphne and Livia. She went to school with Daphne, and so she's one of the bridesmaids. Um, that's her. That's her role, just in the story. But as a narrative device, she's the mirror. So she's right. the thing that basically stands for us in it. The oh my god, you know, we can't believe what we're seeing. There's other issues in the world. She acts basically as a control, so that I think for the reader. I don't think it's necessarily the author saying, this is not what I believe in, but it allows for the reader to say, okay, even in this world where all this stuff seems important, there are occasionally people who walk through who have completely different judgments who are still allowed to live in this world, somehow are accepted in it. So she becomes both a mirror for us to see ourselves, but also sort of the voice of reason. Yeah. However. But she doesn't. She doesn't 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 have a purpose. She doesn't have a purpose. There's no reason. Yeah. Okay, let's take the criticism that this book, like, let's say it's a really successful satire lambasting a certain segment of society. What are we walking away with? Like, rich, waspy people who are obsessed with getting into clubs kind of suck? Like, yeah, no shit. Like, I, I just don't think that that's that big of a revelation. Is there a revelation in this book about any about this group of people or this culture or yeah, that? Like, it that just doesn't thing. feel I, like it's thin. That's it's why I don't thin. think it's a satire. I... Right. I yeah, because a satire think... would be more of a witty takedown. Right? It'd have, satire it'd have a right. punch. twists you into their world and dr- and make you care about these things, and then prove to you how false they are or hollow. And I don't like. I felt like I'm laughing at Win trying to get into all these clubs the whole time. I'm I'm I know it's okay for me to be laughing at him, and then like him kind of realizing that his big you know oh. Maybe I shouldn't have sex with my daughter's friend, and maybe I shouldn't be obsessed with clubs. It's like, well, yeah, I could have told you that in page one, Win. Like that's not. <laughs> so the journey, the big critical journey that this book makes, is really, who cares? Like it's it's just not that big of a deal. What I really loved about this book, and this is you know again just hitting in a really personal place. I do love the ocean. I spent every summer on Cape Cod. I am very, very close to the actual geographical locations of this book. The way that Livia puts her understanding of animals and the ocean as an entire point of view and philosophy in the book, I think that is the takeaway. Those are the most beautiful pieces of writing. Those are the most beautiful emotional moments. Like Very early on, her, she and her father have an argument over whether they saw a heron or an egret. And it's very emotional. It's very revealing about both characters while being a very short little exchange. And that is, I don't know, those were all of the journeys and takeaways that I took. I mean, the thing that got me to want to read this book after I didn't was that I learned that there was a whale involved. And I was like, yes, I want a whale. And my moment actually reading the book and my overall experience is the same note. It was like, I want more whale. Like, I would have read an entire 500-page novel about a whale washing up on shore um, on this island um, because it's that's just really weird and interesting and gross. And if you take the story as it deals with ocean life and how it reflects and involves this family, I thought it was a great book. The wind story, I know I'm going to put out of my mind forever. When, when Maggie Shipstead goes odd and awkward... She she has a really a gift for having people in really awkward fucked up situations. There are a couple set pieces of um, there's there's Livia being drunk and having an outburst at a club that's awful and awesome. There is a moment between Win and Agatha where they try to hook up in the laundry room that is awful, absolutely <laughs> awful. 
Just That's one the of, best moment in the whole book. One of the, the worst way. moments I could imagine in a book. Another great, super awkward one is the scene in the emergency room where there's all these other sick or injured people. Yes. And it, nothing happens in it. It's essentially pointless. But the description of this woman vomiting into a bag <laughs> and this kid who you can't tell what's wrong with him, it's just sometimes Maggie Shipstead sinks really deep into description mm-hmm. and it is incredible. And it, she does well with awkwardness. Yeah. And I, like you, Julia, I just kept waiting for bigger moments of really fucked up, strange interaction because I think. To be, and we won't spoil the ending of the book. There's a wedding. We'll say we'll say that much. But by the conclusion of the novel, I was waiting for there to be consequences. And what ends up what ends up happening is there's there's not a lot of consequence mm-hmm. for That's all the I mean. fucked That's up exactly things that happen. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's like oh, you go back to your safe waspy rich person's first world existence. Like I, I, there was no real critique. There's nothing. I don't I think anything's something. actually going to change. And. I mean, even yeah. what you were saying, Julia, I, I know, like, I understand why you have the attraction to the ocean thing. I obviously, you know, I love Moby yeah. Dick and, like, I love oh, things love that love Moby can, Dick. But I just don't feel like this actually was saying that interesting of things about the parallels between the ocean and the people. Like, I felt like this fell short in that area. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, the bloated whale, just like our bloated lives and the problems. Like, I, and it's pressure. It's about to explode from all this pressure. Like, it felt kind of easy. It felt kind mm-hmm. of... I don't know. It was just like, uh, like let's 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 talk about like the stuff that we read in that um, the Moby Duck book. Like talk about real ocean issues. You know, talk about what's going on with the ocean we, and the we, animals. We, and not just like we hated totally. that book, as I recall. No, seriously. I, but but you know what I'm saying? Like write about real shit. Like don't write about you know these people with their first world problems and then try and like make a couple of nods to like we know this isn't really that important with a character like Dominique. It's like well then. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about something sort of related to this, which is there's a tradition of novels like this. You know, there's a tradition of the well-bred East Coast novel, the people who go to Harvard and Exeter and Princeton and Deerfield and all these places that these people that for a yeah. large segment of the world are completely unknowable. Um, these people that you see in L.L. Bean ads. Um, and so I, I wonder... Not L.L. Bean. Uh, no, not L.L. Bean. Uh, <laughs> L.L. Bean would be Mountain Men. Where you see them on see them on rich kids on Instagram. Yes. Yeah. Seen this. Todd, you gotta learn your East Coast fashions, okay? That's L.L. The Bean is for dorky Maynards. I represent West Coast, yo. I'm West no. Side to the fullest. Todd and I are so West Coast. Yeah. I, mean, I went to school there, but I was in New York City. Like, I did not experience now, this granted, kind of... Now, granted, the three of us uh, also shared a quasi-Ivy League experience, but only for 10 days twice a year at Bennington. So these are the people that we would have gone to school with at Bennington if we went there as undergrads. But, so, there's that tradition of these novels and even going back to like a separate piece which we read you know a year ago so i'm kind of curious where does this fit in in that that sort of canon of literature and are we looking at it too harshly because it's supposed to be one of these examinations of the well-bred and to find out that the well-bred have all the same fucked up problems as the middle class anywhere might i don't know because i was thinking about what separates this from a jonathan franzen novel Mm -hmm. and a franzen novel I feel like all that anxiety and family when they, you know, when characters turn on their own family and it feels more inconvenient. Like this book, even at its most inconvenience, still felt pretty convenient. Mm. Like the mm. characters are never inconvenienced that much. Like their biggest problem is they're not going to get into the club or people are going to find out about an abortion. And if those are the highest stakes and they don't change, 
I don't know if I care that much. Like, oh, your marriage that is always felt like a sham might break up. Like, why am I supposed to care about that? Mm -hmm. Hmm. If you only got married because it was socially convenient and then I'm supposed to at the same time be really stressed out about you maybe going to sleep with your daughter's friend, I don't care. Like, that's you, you, your, your problem was so many years ago that this book is not even dealing with your real problems. I, unlike you guys, I do live in this world. I mean, I live in it very much, actually. You know, my, on my dad's side, you know, I have genealogist uncles. I, I went, I went to a meeting a month ago, um, in the headquarters of the DAR. Okay, so that's a joke in this in this book, but it's something I actually the headquarters you know, of what? The daughters of the American Revolution. So oh. <laughs> this is all this like colonial, old, 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 old money um, stuff that is you know I have had many lobster dinners on the Cape <laughs> and and in Maine, and mm. it's I don't know how to say this more directly than you know you guys would never connect me to this experience, right? You know what I mean? Right. I mean, I'm not this rich and I certainly can't speak for anyone. In fact, I'm not rich at all, but I've operated in this world. I've known people of multiple generations from these places, you know, with these kind of histories, with these experiences. And they're just, it just didn't hit that true feeling of this is where I'm from, even though this book is saying this is what this place is like. This is what this culture is like. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not as, as well informed as, as I think I am. Um, but I mean, but here's the question, Julie, does it matter? I mean, most people aren't going to be from that culture. So most people have to find some connective tissue. I think it matters. I mean, I think it matters if it is accurate or believable a cartoon and if it's linked so heavily to like a place and a culture that you're clearly criticizing, then that culture better be totally real. I mean, I think that's fair to say. You know, yeah. I mean, I flipped to the back midway through, and it says, Maggie Shipstead grew up in Orange County, California. And I was like, okay, good to know. Um, because I just, I felt the the caricatureness of it. And I, I think part of what is interesting about this is, to get back to your question, Todd, about how it's related to these other novels, I think these social concerns are pretty outdated. I don't think that, people are still operating like this now. But I don't know people who wear whale pants, ironically. <laughs> you know? Or unironically, for that matter. Yeah, so... But why do we want to get to know them? Like, why do we want to write novels about them or read novels about them? Like, that's that's kind of my bigger point. Is like, okay, yeah, they're on one level, we can talk about whether this novel succeeds or not in, in capturing this world. But I'm also curious, like, why does this world garner our attention? Like, how... I mean, because obviously it does in some books, and like like Todd was pointing to, a, there is a mm-hmm. tradition of this kind of world. So what does she not do or do that doesn't work? Can we nail that down? Like, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, it's it's two simple things. It's the, the sense that there's not a lot of consequence, and, and then the passivity. I mean, the, there's a... It's a, a undercurrent through all the characters is a sense of passivity which does not create a lot of action and passivity can be a choice itself of course in in a character um but it as i was reading i was like i just want someone well livia makes one non-passive move one very good non-passive move which we won't spoil for the readers well so this is this is sort of an interesting then just final question i think about the book is that 
I think we all agreed we really liked reading it. Yeah. And yeah. so it was an enjoyable sort of book. I think just she's to, a great writer too. Just would... to sit and read, yeah. like I, it, 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 and it evokes that sense of summer, which I think is lovely. It came out last summer, actually. It's out in paperback now. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, if I wasn't thinking about it sort of critically, I could really just say, oh, that was just a fun read. Um, and so I wonder, you know. She's a wonderful writer, and this is a fun read. And are we then putting too much on what could just be an entertainment? No, no. I think it has pretensions to be more. And I, you know, I'm not not saying it's pretentious. I just think that she definitely. It it, it seemed very clear to me up front that she is throwing into the ring with the the Franzens, the Egans, the like that she's. I I I feel like she's trying to write a, you know, something about about family and and anxieties about especially about like women and sexuality Mm -hmm. and controlling women's sexuality and how you know systems of patriarchy and money uh culturally uh control women and i found that i thought that was that was all there and i thought that Mm -hmm. was actually pretty well put throughout the throughout the book um but it just i just I, I, I think she should have taken another year to write this. I think, you know, probably took her a year to write it. I would have, if I were her editor, and this would have been hard because it is very fun, I would have said, go back for another year. Write another 200 pages. Follow up on the Celeste character who's completely dropped. Follow up on the Dominique character who's completely dropped. Follow up on the Piper character who's pointless in this book. There's yeah, there's, there's, there's only, pointless. and there's actually, when you think about it, there's only about six or eight people in this book. And she, you feel like it's going to be this epic sp- you know, jumping around from one character to another, but instead it, it just becomes two people. It just becomes a father-daughter story. Um, just And then everybody else becomes props in that story. So I would have... I, I think she's got to flesh all of those people out more, and which is weird, you know, because I did enjoy it, and I got through it, and I got a lot out of it, and I would actually recommend it to people. That's the even crazier thing, is I will probably tell yeah. my fiancé to read this book. Not Our the listeners. least of which because we're dealing with planning a wedding, but I right. would just say, like, I think she will enjoy this book. And I think, you know, it's interesting to me that you guys are, we're all, three of us are, are more critical than I kind of expected once we sat down to talk Well, you know it. what it is, is I, I expected more because the writing is so good. I expect to have, yes. I, I thought the, the, by the end of it, I was going to be profoundly right. moved to something. And, I, and, you know, it's not a dissimilar way that I feel sometimes reading Jonathan Franzen. Like, yes. I, I enjoyed Freedom, and I thought Freedom was good, but it didn't have the punch of the corrections. Like, when I got done with the corrections, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And that's that moment I was waiting for. You know, you're writing about families. It, presuming there's not going to be a murder, there's only so much that can really fucking happen, you know? Right. It's going to be invariably just about relationships at the end. But I think as a reader, when when the writer is so talented, I'm reaching for... That moment of, oh, yes, I now understand yes. something. And I don't know what yeah. that something was. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I I thought the writing was so unbelievable in parts, especially in the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, here's, here's a win part that I thought was really good. Win is remembering his attempts to determine when he's truly an adult. Mm, um, yeah, that's a good part. And this paragraph is just unbelievable. Is it now, he wondered, as he set down his drink and turned from a conversation with a beautiful girl to vomit into the swimming pool of his friend Tyson Baker? When he heard some months later that Tyson Baker had died during a game of pond hockey dropping through the ice like a lead weight, he thought, is it now? 
Waking up to find a clammy section of his date's stocking draped in a gauze mask across his face. Breaking a champagne flute with a butter knife at a wedding when he meant only to chime for a toast. Chipping a tooth on the sidewalk outside an all-night pancake house. At Christmas, every New Year's, every birthday. At funerals, weddings, when he listened at the door while a girlfriend lay crying in her bathwater. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? I mean, yeah. that's just... That's great. That's just yeah, great. That's, that's, that's that, great stuff. That takes over any plot problem for me that will always like supersede a plot thing or a character thing you know it's so detailed this is what i'm talking mm-hmm. about was missing from from what i think was ultimately an overly ambitious attempt at doing points of view for every character is the detail you know when the detail feels true the book feels true mm-hmm. and when she got too too huge with all these characters she set up amazing details that felt true in the beginning and then was unable to sustain them all together in harmony and i i think that that was the issue with the book but it doesn't mean that it wasn't absolutely beautifully written it just means that we were dissatisfied because our expectations were set so high so early yeah (laughs) i think that that's absolutely true really good way to put it yeah it's really true well, all right, everybody. That was Seating Arrangements by Maggie Shipstead. It's out now in paperback um, from the lovely folks at Knopf, and you can get it now. And if you're planning a wedding, it's the perfect book to read um, while you're sitting there waiting for your wedding planner to meet you to talk about the cost of flowers. How, how much are flowers going to cost you guys? You got, you got no a... flowers at my wedding. We're just going to pick them. <laughs> um, I have no idea. What uh, I can Ryan tell you guys and I aren't really amazing at planning weddings. What, here's, yeah. here's what I can tell you guys: a little something from my own wedding planning, and this this will be helpful to the listeners when you're planning your own weddings. We we bought ornate flowers for our wedding, and we had our wedding area decorated beautifully with all the flowers. And then the wind came and blew them all away. Are you serious? And, yep. Oh. They're all gone. So, note to all of you, either get married indoors or don't spend too much on flowers. That's my, that's my little advice to you guys from old You're married so man wise. Todd. I am so, so wise. wise. So wise. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we take on graphic novels for the first time. We'll read Goliath by Tom Gauld and My Friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening.